0: Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. So Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up in the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and people, Lear, harp, and all kinds of music, and all the nations and the people of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horned flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold and that whoever does not fall down in worship will be thrown into the blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so these men were brought before the king. replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your God or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent that the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace." Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed, their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Uh, Father, I just uh, thank you for this, and I thank you... um, Monty is going to come speak to us, Lord. I pray that you just help us um, just to listen and to hear your word, God.
1: Thank you, Chloe, for doing such a sterling job on that reading. Uh, I was telling somebody this morning that uh, I heard of someone who was preaching in this passage, and whoever was doing the reading, when it got to the next time of the zither and the lyre and the flute, simply said, the band played again. <laughs> Uh, so remember that for next time, every time you hear the band. Uh, it's happened to me twice in two days, so it's a bit worrying. Yesterday I was speaking at a conference up in Belfast, and as Mafi did earlier, it was the icebreaker. Sorry, Maffey, I didn't actually get around to doing it, because for the second time in a row in two days, uh, when I turned to the person beside me, they said, I think you know my mum. LAUGHTER it's got to that stage, and of course, my blood runs cold. How do I know your mum? And particularly yesterday, because the mum in question had sent photographs of me when I was like 19 or 20. Um, so, please, if your mum knows me um, and if she has photographs of me when I was about 19 or 20, I don't want to see them, okay? I just have no desire to see what I was like at that stage or even to remember what I was up to. So, um, yeah, that's just letting you know because it's happening too often. Um, the word empire is a bit of a dirty word, isn't it? Uh, I work for IFES, uh, which is uh, a global organization working with students. Um, we're divided into 11 regions. I look after Europe. Uh, and we're very conscious that whenever we're organizing things, we don't want to perpetuate anything that's sort of colonial or empire. We want all the national movements around all the world and all the continents to develop themselves and their, uh, their own cultural response to, to the Scriptures, and so we can learn from them and not impose ours on them. Uh, it's interesting because when we look at the, at the IFES map of the 11 regions, we realize how much our world has been shaped by empire because all of our regions are divided into things like French-speaking Africa, or English-speaking Africa, or Latin America, which is all Spanish speaking, or the Middle East and North Africa, which is a, a carry-on from the uh, Arabic or Ottoman empire, or maybe the Japanese empire in Asia, or the Russian empire in Eurasia. Um, all these former colonial powers still having a degree of influence on our world. And it wasn't any different at this time in the Scriptures. And if you read the Old Testament, there was the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians and the Assyrians and the Egyptians. They were all empires. In fact, two of the most key parts of the Scripture, two of the earliest stories, uh, involved God's people leaving an empire in order to set up something different. And so, you have Abraham, who was very much part of an earlier Babylonian empire, hundreds of years before Daniel's one, getting up and leaving at the instruction of God. You have Moses in Egypt taking his people out of the Egyptian empire. Uh, and it's not just a case of what empire, or, or of whether or not we use the word empire. There's nothing particularly wrong with the word empire any more than there is with the word kingdom. The question simply is, what empire, what kingdom? Because empires can be more than geographical or political. They can be cultural. They can be philosophical. We're living very much in a globalized empire at the minute, maybe influenced by by the media and various elites, uh, and we have to decide. Who is our emperor? Who is our king? Jesus came to usher in a different type of kingdom. Now, these chapters in Daniel uh, are written in Aramaic. Most of the Bible is written in Hebrew or in Greek, but a few chapters in Daniel and Ezra are written in Aramaic, which was, of course, the, the, the language that Jesus spoke and is still spoken in some places today. And it was a contemporary and universal world context people and exiles from many different nations had been brought to Babylon, not just the Israelites and the Judeans, many others as well. In fact, in verse 7, where you hear about the zither and the lyre, and I I think in one of the older versions, there's a sackbut in there, which I love because I played the trombone at school, and sackbut was the early trombone. And you've all these instruments mentioned, as Chloe knows too well, in several places in that chapter. And they came from different parts of the world. They, 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 it was a real global band. So world music, if you like, owes its genesis to, to Babylon and that concept to Babylon. Uh, and uh, what has happened uh, by the time we get to Daniel is, of course, that although Abraham obeyed God and left, although Moses obeyed God and brought his people out of Egypt, over a period of time, the Israelites had sinned by wanting to be an empire like the other empires. Uh, They had wanted a king like the other nations, uh, and that was the key problem. Not that they wanted a king, because uh, eventually Christ was going to be their their ultimate king. Nothing wrong with kingship, but they they wanted a king like the other nations. And so, they, they went for a Solomon and a Rehoboam who enslaved the people and behaved like the kings of the other nations. And you read the book of Kings and Chronicles, you see how many of the kings did exactly that. It's still a temptation, isn't it, for, for believers to, to want to model their power uh, uh, on the world's idea of power uh, and wealth. Uh, it's the power of the modern state that we know all too well. Uh, I work with students. Very often they have to work in the empire of the modern university, which has its own structures, and very often they feel excluded and marginalized from that. So how do we live? How do we live in an empire where the values are very, very different from those that, that Christ once has set up in his, his kingdom. Well, here, of course, there's inevitably going to be a clash. There's going to be a battle, and it comes to a head in uh, Daniel chapter 3, with this refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to bow down. But the interesting thing is, if you're thinking, well, I could never be like them, I could never have the power just to stand out from the crowd at at, at fear of death, um, they didn't do that in a vacuum. They were able to do it because there had been battles before the battle. There had been conflicts before the big conflict. They had won previous battles, and that enabled them and emboldened them in the power of God's Spirit to To win the big one, we see it in chapter one, where they—you probably dealt with it a couple of weeks ago—where they refused to uh, defile themselves with the food and the drink at the king's table. Uh, And I, um, people are disagreed over well, what was so special about that food and drink? Why would that defile them? You know, they were going to have the vegetables instead. They would have been also offered to idols. uh, You know, what, what 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 was the issue there? Uh, and I think the key is not about the food and the drink itself, but the fact that it came from the king's table. Uh, you only dined at or with the food from the king's table if essentially he owned you. You were his loyal subject, your allegiance was totally to him. Jesus had a meal with his closest associates the night before he died. You only dined intimately round the table. With, with those who were your um, trusted allies, which, of course, made the, the, the betrayal of the disciples all the more, all the more uh, difficult to take. But um, here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego basically are saying to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 1, they're saying, you can change our names, you can enroll us in your universities, you can have us active in politics, you can make us as Babylonian externally as you want, but you will never own us. We will never be your unquestioning uh, subjects. Uh, We will will be loyal citizens, but you cannot count on us as your allies. So they made a statement to show that at the heart, we will be different. And there would have been other battles as well. Uh, And it's difficult because Nebuchadnezzar had been a patron to these guys. He had promoted them. He had trusted them. Um, we see later with Daniel uh, in, in the story of Darius and, and, and the lions, how, how Darius was really burdened by the fact that he was tricked into throwing Daniel into the lion's den, that he had that, 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 that been put into this self-made cul-de-sac he couldn't get out of, under relief when he saw that Daniel was still alive. Um, because, because he had invested in, in him. And very often it is difficult for us to say to people who have maybe in some ways bought our allegiance uh, by giving us their time and their patronage to say, well, actually, no, you'll never own me. I know of students who have said that their lecturer who had, who had invested in them, maybe their PhD supervisor, or someone who had great hopes for them and saw them as their protege. Was, was, was really hurt whenever they said, well, actually, I'm not going to go any further in this field. I'm going to work for the church or I'm going off on Christian missions or something. I had a friend who um, uh, grew up in, in, in Belfast, and he says that my parents... Uh, I have a really difficult time with my parents at the minute who don't want me to go any further in my desire to pursue ministry. Uh, uh, They they, they think I'm, they said, they've paid for my education. Why am I throwing it all away? Why can't I be like my big brother? His big brother was dabbling in drugs. He was coming home drunk every weekend, but he had secured a very good job in finance and that these nominal Christian parents would much rather that my friend was like his big brother because vocation and and status in society was more important than obedience to God. So, these battles may have to be fought from time to time, and then the stakes do get higher. Uh, The stakes will get higher. Um, Sometimes, and we see this around the world, And maybe some of you have experienced this in your home countries, or you know of folks who have, where standing up for God can be a matter of life and death. I think of Ajit Fernando, the Christian speaker from Sri Lanka, who tells the story of three of the early Methodist missionaries to Fiji in the early 19th century. They were told, even by people within their own mission, if you keep doing this, you will likely be killed. If you don't listen to, to what the, the, the community chiefs and all are saying, and if you don't tone things down a bit, you could actually get killed. And they said, we died before we got here. We died before. When, when we decided to serve God, in fact, from the moment we gave our life to Christ, we died to ourselves. And there can be that road of, of suffering. Whenever whenever we find ourselves in conflict with the empire or the culture around us. And often that happens through bad political decisions. Uh, There was a racism issue here. The opponents of of the three guys highlight their Jewish origins in verse 12. Uh, They say that they are politically dangerous. They pay no attention, they say, to you, O king, uh, and we will be the victims of, of injustice and misrepresentation at times. People will, 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 will seek to say, you know, that you, that you are dangerous. Of course, an, an area of truth in that, uh, but, but it's, it, it's still extremely difficult to take. Some of you may have followed the, uh, the reports of one of the front runners for the leadership of the Scottish Nationalist Party, Kate Forbes, who is a committed Christian and has been vocal about her faith. She is an incredibly competent politician. She's been finance minister of Scotland at the age of 32. She is well respected and regarded as a person of integrity and honesty. Um, And uh, if it was just an issue of political competence, it would be a no-brainer. But because she has been uh, open about her views on certain uh, social and moral issues, uh, people have declared her unfit for office. And um, it's interesting, though, that she is such a person of integrity that even in the, the hysteria, if you like, of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of the more woke uh, agenda, there are people who stand up for her and say, no, that should not disqualify her because she is so honest and competent. We can, we can actually uh, uh, trust her to, to, to tell the truth because if she really put political ambition above everything else... She would try to hide some of these things. But now we know she's an honest person. And one secular um, critique, uh, political commentator had said, uh, what would you rather, who would you rather be ruled by? Somebody who is a dedicated follower of Jesus for whom politics is not the center of their life or people for whom politics is the center of their life and they want it to be the center of your life as well. And then he said, if evangelical zeal is something you want to be kept out of politics, then it's not Kate Forbes you should be worried about. It is those who are trying to impose their views on her and on you. So it will be difficult. It will be difficult. So how do you respond to to cultural conflict? Well, of course, there's three uh, classic ways that have been put forward. First of all, to, to, to separate not to engage, not to witness, not to interact, just to get out, go off and go off and live in, in, in your own little worlds, or even emigrate, as some as many have had to do even for their lives at times. Uh, but, but to decide, no, I'm not called to engage here. Uh, I will get out. Or to compromise, to lose our distinctiveness, to just go along with the rest. There's no engagement, there's no encounter because you just become like everyone else you give in. And in each of those cases, the empire wins, either because they've got rid of you or because you've just become like them. And of course, the best solution is faithful testimony. They did that in chapter 1. They chose to engage, to be involved in Babylon, but when it came to the crunch, they stood up for what they believed. They were faithful in the little in chapter 1. So that'll enable them to be faithful in the much in chapter 3. There was an interesting article written a few years ago by an Australian guy called Steve McAlpine, and it was asking Christians, are you ready for the second exile? And he said that the first exile was, if you like, the situation that Paul encountered in Athens, and we have encountered in the early years after Christendom. And that is that that faith and faith in the, in the true God is marginalized. It's off to the side. You can believe that if you want. You can sing your songs. You can pray your prayers. Just don't bring it into the public square. Um, or it can take its place alongside everything else. And of course, Paul witnessed the, um, uh, the, the the altar to the unknown God. And he used that as a means of contact. And the, the, the sort of idea of Athenian apologetics is that you look for that moment of contact, you look for that place of contact, and you build a bridge. And it presumes that people are open-minded. It presumes that if they find that point of contact, they are willing to think about it. And They're saying, "Well, actually, if I do come to believe, that's what I will. That's what I will believe. That's the church I'll go to. I, I like that. You you make sense." Um, but. McAlpine is saying things have changed. I mean, let me qualify. Apologetics is still extremely important, as much for the Christian, even if there are fewer seekers. Uh, especially in the Western world, if there are fewer seekers going to be convinced by arguments because there are so many presuppositions behind. Still, for Christians, it's important that we know what we believe and why we believe that it isn't intellectual suicide to be a Christian and that there are answers to the big questions of life. But in terms of actually working in the hearts of of seekers uh, and non-Christians and unbelievers, there's so much work to be done before that because McCabe says, we're not living in Athens, we're living in, in, in Babylon, uh, the, 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 um, those who drive the culture are now interested in bringing us back into the center. Um, that might seem strange, but McAlpine says they want to bring us back into the center not because they believe, not, not to hear what we have to say, but to ridicule us, to flay to flay us, to expose our real and alleged abuses, to render us naked and shivering before a jeering crowd. McAlpine says that what they want to do today is like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing up before the statue of gold while everybody else around us is groveling and going, for goodness sake, bow down to the stupid statue. You know, pick some other battle and just, just go along with it. He says it's like the officials who conspired against Daniel by telling, Nebuchadne- or by telling Darius that Daniel's act of, of praying towards Jerusalem three times a day wasn't an archaic, foolish, pious practice, but a very real and dangerous threat to the order of society. I have uh, colleagues who, who work in Belarus um, and they're the only ones in our region that we know of who, um, uh, who have actually been up in court for their faith. Uh, still a, quite a strong regime there. And uh, why? I mean, why these harmless students are up in, in court? It's because somebody has bought into the idea these guys are dangerous. If it was just some pious platitudes and private religion, they'd never be there but somehow they were regarded as a threat to the state. It's a wonderful story. A Katya, a young woman who, who leads the group, uh, in order for the court to decide whether or not what they were doing was a threat to society and illegal, the court had to hear the entire evangelistic message of the event. Uh, and so God was preached in the courtroom. Uh, they could have been put to prison. They could have been given a massive, massive fry, fine, But the judge, I think, not having the courage to pronounce him not guilty, but in a little statement of her own, fined him $12, basically saying, this should never have come up before me. You know, get out. And the first prayer letter they wrote after that was, please help us next week as we plan next month's mission. So they weren't keeping their heads down. She came up to me last October and I said, how are things going? She says it's great with loads of folks coming to faith, but I'm really disappointed because a number of the Western people, a number of the Western speakers that we had invited to come to Belarus, which of course borders Ukraine, um, have pulled out because they say that their travel insurance doesn't cover them. (laughs) She said, the Apostle Paul didn't stop going somewhere because his travel insurance didn't cover him. It's quite feisty, our Katya. Um, So a few weeks ago when I got uh, an email from her asking me to go and speak at their next conference in the summer, I sort of said to go, and I don't think I've got any option here, do I? (laughs) But Katya and the others are experiencing what uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego experienced. Everybody else saying, listen, just keep your head down. But they counted the cost they stood firm. They knew the importance of the battle. Some people have asked, well, where was Daniel in all of this? It's one of those little, little puzzles. But I think if you look at the um, promotions that, that Daniel had, had got, um, some of those involved being away for quite considerable periods of time in the provinces ruling for the king there, um, or t- traveling, or actually being resident in one of the other provinces. So that seems to be the most likely um, explanation, since Daniel himself makes his own stand a couple of chapters later. So this is a First Kings chapter 18 type battle with Elijah on Mount Car- Carmel. Choose which God you will serve. Whenever, um, in verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar says, "No God will be able to save you from what I am planning." Remember those early verses, verses two and three, where all the officials are named, and you know all the satraps and governors and prefects, blah blah blah. I mean, that's repeated. Why? and That's listed. Why? It's basically saying everybody else was on board, everybody else was buying down, everybody else was involved. So, what sort of God are we going to serve? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego decide not to bother with debate on this occasion. Actions speak louder than words. The goal wasn't deliverance from the king. The goal wasn't their safety or survival. The final criteria was the glory of God. For them, to bow or to burn was the same choice. To bow would have meant the end of their community because they were the only ones doing it. The other Israelites had all compromised. To bow would have meant the end of their community, the assimilation of all groups into Babylonian state and religion. A little bit like those in some parts of the world who are being persecuted because they're not going to pay the ISIS tax. You know, ISIS will say, no, we do allow people to have freedom of religion, but you do actually have to pay this tax, which is, you know, showing allegiance to us. The goal isn't deliverance, but God's glory. They knew that their God could deliver them. They had that amazing faith. We know our God is so big that you're accountable to Him. And so if He wants to deliver us, He will. But then that verse 18, even if He doesn't. We've been singing a lot of good songs here about you know claiming and faith and appropriately so with our minds. God, you've never let us down. You've been faithful through generations. You've never abandoned us. But what if it doesn't feel like that? What if in the back of your mind you can say, "Well, actually, you have let me down once or twice. A couple of things that I really wanted, and it hasn't happened. It hasn't come true. You've you've misled me. You've cheated me, God. But like the psalmist and those psalms of lament." It's all right to say that. It's all right to think that. What do we do whenever it seems that there are no earthly guarantees that we will be delivered? Well, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego had an eternal perspective. They said, even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. And that is because They coveted his presence more than their own deliverance. If we are feeling that God has let us down, that God has abandoned us in some way, maybe he's drawing our attention to the fact that there's something greater than what we desire. For us, the area in which we feel he has let us down is the ultimate it's so all we can see in our horizon. But maybe God is saying, well, actually, do you know what? I have something better. I have something greater. So even if He doesn't deliver, either deliver us physically or deliver what we want, we will not bow down to any other God. They knew the alternative. Even If he doesn't, we will die, but we will trust his sovereignty and goodness. We will not buy. So, as we find ourselves in this cultural conflict, I guess we can look at it like there is our part and there is his part. Our part is uh, willing and unconditional surrender. It says in, uh, in verse 28, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. What a great testimony from the mouth of the king who had tried to kill them. They willingly surrendered, an act of the will. The paranoia, the self-destructiveness of the empire is seen in the fact that it wasn't just throw them into the fire. It was done with fury and anger, stoked up quickly so that even the soldiers who accompanied them were consumed. Empires that are stacked against God end up destroying themselves. Think of how many poor, innocent Russians have been destroyed by Putin's megalomania. They don't care about their own people. Writer of the Hebrews writes this, What more shall I say? Those who through faith quenched the fury of the flames escaped the edge of the sword whose weakness was turned to strength whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and ill-treated The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. But essentially, he's saying, they knew it was worth it. They would gain an even better resurrection. There was something ahead better than even what they desired. Even than life itself, Paul in Philippians 1, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That is the radical faith of the Christian. It's a worship song. Uh, I think it's by Rand Collective. I'm sure you've sung it a couple of times. I'm saying yes to you and no to my desires. I leave myself behind and follow you. I'll walk the narrow road because it leads me to you. I'll fall, but grace will pick me up again. I've counted up the cost, oh, I've counted up the cost. Yes, I've counted up the cost, and you are worth it. I do not need safety as much as I need you. His presence rather than our deliverance. So that's our part, willing surrender. And then there's His part, the God who walks with us. Verse 25, what a privilege for these guys to see Jesus before His incarnation and before their death. You see, God didn't just deliver them. He was there with them in the fire. It's Psalm 23, isn't it? Even though I walk through the darkest valley, you are with me. It's certainly Isaiah 43. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. What Isaiah used as a metaphor became a reality for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is better than deliverance, this is presence. Jesus asked his Father in John 17 that he would not take us out of the world, but that he would protect us from the evil one. That's Jesus' prayer for us. It might be a protection against compromise, a protection against losing our faith, a protection against physical opposition, but he's never going to take us out of the world that he loves or the world that he died for. He's going to keep us in it and call us to enter and serve. He walks with us. And he walks with us, and he calls us because he himself has felt those flames, and he was not delivered. There was a later day when the fourth man was consumed. So don't underestimate the power of faith through weakness. In this story, the empire falls at the feet of faith. Don't underestimate that. The kingdom of God prevails not through strength, but through weakness and through sacrifice. The truth is not affected by the results. Who survives and who doesn't? The faithful don't always survive. Stephen had a vision of the presence of God and the Son of Man shining in heaven just as he died. That was God's purpose for him. There is still violence and extremism and burning going on of our brothers and sisters in this area where this story is set. Is God silent? Jesus is still Lord. God is still faithful. He doesn't always promise to deliver, but he promises to be present. I think of the Coptic Christians being martyred in Egypt and calling out the name of Jesus as they died. I think of Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna in the second century, who was up before the Roman Empire, emperor, a bit like Jesus before Pilate and the emperor, said to him, you know I have the power to release you. Just denounce Jesus or, or, or you will die. I have wild animals. I have fire at my disposal. Just announce him. Polycarp said, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me, says Polycarp, with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Polycarp was burned at the stake and pierced with a spear for refusing to burn incense to the Roman emperor. At his death, he said, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. Folks, we are not alone. We're not alone humanly because there are almost more brothers and sisters, we think. That's what's Elijah's lesson in 1 Kings 19 when he thought he was the only one left and God said there were thousands others who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. But above all, we are not alone because someone walked through the fire for us. Our strength is in the crucified Christ Jesus died because of similar religious extremism and violence. He could have escaped off the cross, but he didn't. He didn't compromise. He didn't bow down. He went there for us. And the Father didn't deliver him. In fact, the darkness was so great it was as if the Father's face had turned away. He felt abandoned. And alone. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he did that so that the flames would never touch us. The flames of judgment would never touch us. He did it so that we would never be abandoned. He did it so that we would not only be delivered from our sin and from guilt and from shame. He did it that we might have his presence forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We give you thanks that we can trust you ultimately, whatever the future may hold, that in life and in death, you are our only hope. We give you thanks that even if we do not get what we desire, we can never lose what you desire for us. In Jesus' name, amen.